This is CNN Tonight. I'm Jake Tapper, live from Lviv, Ukraine, which is close to NATO's doorstep in the West, just about 40 miles from Poland. This region was targeted by Russian cruise missiles within the last 24 hours or so, about an hour uh, northeast of where I'm standing. But Ukraine's military claims to have shot those missiles down. The fiercest fighting is underway right now, however, in eastern Ukraine, according to government officials there. Uh, That's where Vladimir Putin has shifted focus for what seems to be a new phase of his war, heavy fighting reported today by local officials in the Dobas region of Luhansk and Donetsk. Also, more than two dozen strikes reported on residential areas, residential areas in the city of Kharkiv. The Pentagon assesses the Russian forces have completely withdrawn from areas around the capital of Kiev and nearby Chernihiv to close in on that Donbass region. But Putin has not necessarily given up on trying to capture the capital of Kiev. He's just moving his troops and the targets of his brutal strikes elsewhere for now. And as Russian troops move elsewhere, their horrific actions are being revealed in towns that they once occupied, such as Bucha. A warning again this evening, some pictures that we will show you throughout this hour, such as these, are graphic and disturbing. A senior U.S. defense official now says the slaughter of perhaps hundreds of Ukrainians in Bucha does appear to have been premeditated and planned. And the U.S. government also believes it will be able to identify the Russian units that carried out these atrocities. That, of course, would be key in any possible war crimes trial. And President Biden declared again today, these are war crimes. There's nothing less happening than major war crimes. Responsible nations have to come together to hold these perpetrators accountable. The president also announced plans to keep ratcheting up the pain for Putin to try to stop his invasion, issuing new sanctions on Russia's elite, including Putin's two adult daughters. Meanwhile, the city council of Mariupol is accusing Russian forces of trying to hide its alleged war crimes. They're saying they're doing this because by Russians starting to operate with mobile crematoriums that they're using to dispose of bodies so as to destroy evidence. That is not a claim that CNN has been able to yet verify. Uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is also saying tonight that he believes Russian forces are engaged in cover-ups. Take a listen to Zelensky this evening. We have information that the Russian troops have changed their tactics and are trying to remove the killed people from the streets and basements of the occupied territory. Killed Ukrainians. This is just an attempt to hide the evidence and nothing more. The mayor of Mariupol is referring to his city now as the new Auschwitz, claiming that the city has been turned into a, quote, death camp like those from World War II Auschwitz, of course, Uh, was the largest of the Nazi concentration camps located in Poland. Uh, Before this war, more than 400,000 civilians lived in Mariupol. Uh, We have no idea how many have been killed there or how many have been able to escape. Uh, CNN's Dana Bash exclusively spoke with Poland's president earlier today. He said he believes what's happening in Ukraine now is also genocide. The fact that civilian inhabitants of Ukraine are being killed shows best what the goal of Russian invasion is. The goal of that invasion is simply to extinguish the Ukrainian nation. 
We turn now to senior international correspondent Fred Pleitkin, who, who has seen firsthand so many of these horrors up close. Uh, Fred witnessed those mass graves in Bucha with his own eyes, those bodies strewn all over the streets. Fred, uh, you also saw what unfolded in western Kiev from another vantage point today, that vantage point being drone video. Tell us about that. Hi there, Jake. Yeah, it really is one of the things about uh, this this war so far uh, is uh, the big question how Ukrainian forces, which of course were massively outgunned by the Russians, managed to yet push the Russians back. And of course, now the Russians have essentially left the region around Kiev. And uh, one of the main reasons why they were able to do that was regular civilians, both taking up arms, but also using other skills that they have, like for instance, flying drones, to act as force multipliers. And we were indeed with one unit that certainly plays an important role, especially in the west of Kiev. And we went to the region that they helped take back from Russian forces. And there, like in so many other places, like in Bucha, like in Borodyanka, there were a lot of dead bodies uh, that we ourselves saw while we were on the ground there. So we do have to warn our viewers once again that what you're about to see is very graphic and also very disturbing. Just be careful. Just move, move, move from the road. It's like a scene from the gates of hell. The dead lay strewn across this highway west of Kiev, some still next to the wreckage of their vehicles as the dogs roam around looking to scavenge. This is what Russian forces left behind when they retreated from here. They organized ambush over there. Where are we going right now? Alexander Radzichovsky tells me these were civilians gunned down from this position where the Russians had placed a tank. And you can see it's actually building... The shooting zone, mm. you see? Yeah. And these cars, look, they're sort of in line. Mm. There's no cars here because mm. they will not let them come. They just shoot as soon as they approach. The Russian government denies targeting civilians. They call such allegations, quote, fake and propaganda. But Alexander is part of a drone unit, and they filmed one incident. It was March 7th when the Russians were still in full control of this area, and a group of cars was driving down the highway. They turned around after apparently taking fire from the tank position this car stops and the driver gets out. Then this. He's raised his head above the, his head, and in this moment he was shot by on this place. Two people were killed that day, Maxim Iovenko and his wife Ksenia, who was also sitting in the vehicle. The family has confirmed the identities to CNN. After the incident, the drone filmed Russian troops getting two further people out of the car and taking them away. It was the couple's six-year-old son and a family friend traveling with them, the relatives confirmed. Both were later released by the Russians. The soldiers then search Maxim's body and drag him away. This incident, both traumatizing and motivating for Alexander's drone unit. In normal life, before the war, we were civilians who liked to fly drones around casually and just like make a nice video, YouTube videos. But when the war began, we become actually a vital part of the, of, the, of, the, of the resistance. Alexander sent us hours of video showing his team scoping out Russian vehicles, even finding them when they're hidden and almost impossible to spot, and then helping the Ukrainians hit them. We are eyes. We call eyes because with eyes you can see and you can report. And as soon as you see, you can conduct strikes, artillery, mil uh, air strikes. How long does it take to get your information to the right places to then be able to act on the intelligence that you provide? In good time, it's about a matter of minutes. And sometimes a little mosquito can take out a whole herd of elephants. This is drone footage of Alexander's unit searching for a massive column of Russian tanks and armored vehicles. And this is that column after the drones found it. 
Alexander tells me units like his played a major role fending off Russian troops despite the Ukrainians being vastly outgunned. We're agile as a territorial defense. We can, oh, we don't want to just like, it's, it's suicide damage, we need to go. But the army, they have to stay. They're ordered to stay, they stay. They dying, but they stay and they hold in this ground. Nobody knows how many Russians died here, but the group says it was many, taken out with the help of a band of amateur drone pilots looking to defend their homeland. And they certainly were very effective at doing that, Jake. Nevertheless, of course, this uh, drone unit, like pretty much all the units that we spoke to uh, of the Ukrainian military that were involved in the operation to uh, drive the Russians away from the capital of Kiev, they say on the one hand, of course, they're very proud of their achievements. They, of course, know that they were the underdog in this, but they are also very saddened and, of course, very angry at the fact that so many civilians were left behind dead. And it's something that now in many places is being discovered, not just there, but, of course, as we've seen in other places around Kiev as well. Jake. All right, Fred Plentkin in Kiev for us this evening. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I want to turn now to the front lines where the youngest member of the Ukrainian parliament is taking up arms against the Russian invaders. He's with a battalion that liberated a town near Bucha. His girlfriend was a journalist. She was killed by Russian shelling in mid-March. Sviatoslav Yorash joins us now from Kiev. Uh, Sviatoslav, good to see you again. You're, you're part of a battalion that liberated that town near Bucha. Tell us what you saw there. Sviatoslav, can you hear me? Sviatoslav, can you hear me? I don't think he has his, uh, his yes, volume turned on. Uh, oh, now you can. Tell us what you saw in that town. You're near. Okay. Tell us what you. Tell us what you. Um, what you saw. What you witnessed in that town near Bucha that you helped liberate. Okay. We obviously have to work out some comms issues. We're going to squeeze in a quick break. When we come back, we're going to bring you that interview. Stay with us. We're back live from Ukraine. Apologies for the communications issues, which can happen, especially in a war zone. We have now established communications with Member of Parliament uh, Sviatoslav Yorash, who's in Kiev. I am in Lviv. Uh, Sviatoslav, thanks for joining us. Um, you were part of a brigade uh, that helped liberate a town near Bucha. Tell us what you saw. Uh, we saw a site much devastation. Russians basically are leaving uh, uh, destroyed uh, communities, destroyed towns that they are wrecking with every single day of, that this war goes on. And believe me, I think Bucha is just the beginning. As we liberate more of our country, you will see much more horror on your TV screens. So we are seeing that horror in real life. And... We cannot but uh, state our utter shock at the fact that this is possible in our time. Did you see evidence of brutality against Ukrainian citizens, as we all saw in Bucha? I was in Borodyanka uh, yesterday. It's a town which was badly mauled by the Russians, and this is a town which has no military base, had no brigade, had no uh, airport. And Russians hit it with everything they've got, and uh, they basically destroyed residential buildings with air power. 
um, there are still people uh, in the rubble of uh, those national buildings that they destroyed. There are unexploded shells lying around the city, and they basically have shown that this war is about destroying the common people of Ukraine in the Borodyanka area like nowhere else. You and I last spoke on March 4th. After all you've seen in the past 42 days, all of the horrors after your girlfriend was killed in this war, how have you changed? Uh, we are determined, determined to keep this fight going until we get Russians out. That was always our idea, that they leave our nation alone. And all the sacrifice, all the losses, all the people that are so dear and so near to us must mean something. That's why we must win this. You're in Kyiv. Tell us what the mood is like there now that the Russians are at least gone for now. Well, the city has uh, essentially become a citadel in every single way. The point now is to make this a center, a hub of keeping up the fight everywhere else. I mean, they are attacking some of our biggest cities in the east right now. So the point is to get uh, the soldiers, the supplies, the help there to defeat the Russians and to keep them out of the major cities, keep them from making more butchers or any Ukraine. We know you have satellite technology and you've been tracking Russian military movements. Tell us what you're seeing. Well, as you have been, and uh, the American uh, American intelligence service was very clear to tell the world the Russians are basically focusing on the east. And uh, this is a tactic they developed in Syria of destroying cities and then going, coming into them and declaring them conquered. You see that with Mariupol. Uh, Mariupol essentially is no more. Russians have demolished that city in which I was just two weeks before the war. It was a beautiful half million people town uh, on the on the sea and now every building that is hit we don't know we cannot imagine how many casualties are being uh, are being lost there but the reality is something that boggles the imagination some of our top uh, generals are assessing the war and saying he thinks that uh, saying they think that this war might last for years. Do, do you agree with that? And, and what are your biggest concerns about having to fight in a war that lasts that long? Well, it depends on Mr. Putin. He has been very clear about his goal of destroying our statehood, our nationhood, and uh, he is unlikely to give up on that quest as he has not given up in 20 years of his rule. So the point is that for us, just to remember that we have no other nation to go to, we have no other nation to leave to. This is the battle for our future. So we will not uh, stand idly by as he goes on killing and destroying everyone in this country. Member of Parliament, Sviatoslav Yorash, thank you so much and our deepest, deepest condolences on your loss. Thank you. President Zelensky is saying this evening that Russian airstrikes have killed hundreds of children in Russian-speaking regions of the country. Zelensky gave an interview to a Turkish TV station earlier today. Take a look. Their narrative is that they are protecting Russian-speaking people. Look what is happening in Mariupol, what happened in Kharkiv, what is happening in Melitopol, in Berdansk, especially in Mariupol and Kharkiv. 
There are a lot of Russian speakers there. The majority of people they killed there were the very people they said they were coming to defend. Hundreds of children in these Russian-speaking regions have been killed by their airstrikes. I want to bring in Alexandra Matvichuk from Kyiv. She is the head of the Center for Civil Liberties in Ukraine, which is collecting evidence of war crimes. Thank you for joining us. You're leading hundreds of volunteers who are documenting and reporting and storing in databases accounts of war crimes, atrocities against civilians. What are some of the war crimes that you have documented so far? We United Ordinary Peoples, it's why we are focused on very visible war crimes, like deliberate shelling on civil objects, hospitals, schools, residential buildings, deliberate shelling on civilian population, for example, during their evacuation from the destroyed by Russian cities. Also, enforced disappearances, uh, extrajudicial killings, tortures, and other uh, kinds of actions, which now is going on on the occupied cities and villages by Russians. Are you talking to any prosecutors or authorities with the International Criminal Court? Uh, are you getting any guidance from any outside groups? Uh, and, and once you collect all that information, what are you going to do with it? We had a big experience of cooperation with International Criminal Court because we have been documented war crimes for eight years already. And the first submissions from Ukraine, which International, Committee, uh, International Criminal Court received, it was our submission in 2014. So we plan to work with ICC and with all other international mechanisms which can help us to bring Putin and his surrounding to justice, as well as other perpetrators who committed these horrible atrocities by their own hands. President Zelensky said uh, that Russian troops are now taking the corpses of the innocent Ukrainians they have murdered uh, and either attempting to hide them or even we've heard of mobile incinerators uh, in Mariupol. Have you seen any evidence of this? And if Russians are attempting to cover up war crimes, what can you do about it, if anything? We try to check this information, but it's very difficult because Mariupol is isolated and people here have no connection. Also, they have no water, they have no food, they have no medical care and electricity. But this war has informational dimension, and it can be because Russians understood that when the atrocities become very visible, then can increase international pressure to Russia. And that's why I, I think that we can, we can, after our check-in, approve this, uh, but we are still in process. Your team also works to provide immediate aid to people in danger who have requested to be evacuated. How are those efforts going? What are you hearing from those individuals still trying to escape? We receive uh, hundreds of requests of help uh, from people who stuck in cities because Russians use the deliberate policy of isolation cities and villages and don't provide uh, people to evacuate. For the whole this period, they provide permission for the only one humanitarian corridor for International Committee of Red Cross from Sumy to Lubne. And this deliberate policy because they want to stop the resistance of locals. And that's why they bring so pain for people who couldn't live and stay without appropriate um, sources for survive. 
you want international organizations to hold not just Putin to account, but individual Russian soldiers who have committed these war crimes. What does accountability look like to you? I want to stop this, uh, this atrocities to, to going on. Because now we speak not about Ukraine. Putin wasn't stopped with everything which he did in Chechnya. Putin wasn't stopped for war crimes which he did in Transnistria, Abkhazia and Ossetia. Putin even wasn't punished when he used chemical weapons against civilians in Syria. So if we will not be able to stop the circle of impunity and to bring Putin, his surrounding, to justice, it will encourage him more and more. And it will be only a matter of time which next country will be a target. You're a human rights attorney and you're calling for more weapons, fighter jets, tanks, air defense systems. That is an unusual uh, combination to be talking about human rights, but also talking about weapon systems. Talk to me about that balance. I have never expected to be in this situation, but I devoted 20 years of my work and my life for law. And law was my main instrument. But now I see that the law is not work. I couldn't protect people. Ukrainians are dying. I want Ukrainian people to survive. That's why I ask to provide Ukraine weapon. We need to protect our civilians. We need to protect our cities. That's why we need fighter jets. We need air defense systems. We need tanks and much more. Alexandra Matvichuk, thank you so much for your time this evening. We really appreciate it. So far, economic sanctions have done little to stop Putin's invasion. Nothing to stop Putin's invasion. So will new sanctions imposed today really have any effect? We'll talk to a key U.S. lawmaker recently briefed on Putin's state of mind. He's the co-chair of the Congressional Ukraine Caucus. That's next. Welcome back. I'm live in Lviv. The horrific images of atrocities in parts of Ukraine, such as Bucha, only reinforce what the people I've spoken with here in Ukraine have been hearing from loved ones and friends and acquaintances for weeks. Yet there are still allies of the U.S. and the European Union who continue to straddle the fence, including the governments of Israel and India. For more on how the world is responding, I'm joined this evening by a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the co-chair of the Congressional Ukraine Caucus, Republican Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania. Congressman, good to see you. You also said on the House Select Committee on Intelligence, how does the world hold those responsible for these atrocities accountable? Thanks for having me, Jake. Um, well, it starts with holding Vladimir Putin uh, and the Russian government accountable uh, by completely tightening the noose on sanctions. We have not yet done that. Uh, number two, uh, getting the Ukrainians all the defensive equipment that they need. We have not yet done that. Uh, and lastly, holding other countries accountable that are dragging their feet. Um, we got reports this morning that Germany is hesitant on a complete um, uh, oil embargo out of Russia. Uh, I met just yesterday with the ambassador of India uh, regarding their abstention at the UN, uh, which we were very disappointed in. Um, you know, so we, we got to take a 360 degree uh, paradigm approach to make sure we're doing everything to protect Ukraine and to hold Russia accountable, both militarily and economically. 
would you, do you think the United States should recognize the authority of the International Criminal Court? We are not signatories to the ICC, or at least would the U.S., should the U.S. increase funding for the court? Yes, yes to both, uh, Jake. Um, there needs to be an investigation. It needs to be done quickly, not 20 years later, as has often been the case with them. Uh, the evidence is there now. It ought to be collected now, and Vladimir Putin ought to be investigated and prosecuted now. That's what needs to happen. Um, and I hope that we do that. And yes, if it's a matter of increasing funding, uh, pushing whatever levers we need to do to make that happen, uh, never again needs to mean never again. And we are witnessing images that we thought were permanently relegated to the history books. They're happening right before our eyes. And I listened in on a few of your uh, previous guests, uh, Jake. Uh, Bucha, you think that's bad? Wait till they uncover Mariupol and all the devastation and travesty that's going to be uncovered there. I, I, I know. It's, it's hard to even imagine. Um, I have to say, you have been an unequivocal supporto, supporter of the NATO alliance. Um, but just yesterday, the House passed this non-binding resolution just re- reaffirming the House's unequivocal support for NATO as an alliance founded on democratic principle. And I, I frankly was rather shocked to see that 63 of your House Republican colleagues voted against that, voted against something that calls for supporting small-D democratic values. What's going on with, with this big chunk of your party? Yeah, that'd be a question for them, Jake. I, I, I don't understand the vote. Um, I obviously cast the opposite vote uh, to support NATO. Uh, the NATO alliance is critically important. Um, you know, what I, and I will tell you, would I like to see NATO be doing a lot more right now? Yes. Um, I don't think NATO has stepped up to the plate to the extent they need to, but certainly I support NATO unequivocally. It's critical for all freedom-loving democracies across the globe. I spoke with a member of the Biden administration, the deputy national security advisor today about these latest sanctions. Let me play for you a little bit of what he said. We've already banned uh, Russian energy, Russian oil, Russian coal, Russian natural gas from the U.S. Uh, we, are, we are in discussions with the rest of the world to follow suit. So I had said to him that all the sanctions they're doing, are, they're very aggressive, and yet it really seems as though the only thing that would stop Putin would be to cut off all of the funding, the hundreds of billions of dollars that go to Russia for these oil and gas exports from Russia. Um, what else should the U.S. be doing? Uh, a lot more, uh, Jake. Um, the sanctions are helpful, but they have not gotten the job done. Uh, the ruble is now trading at a rate uh, pre-invasion levels. It's now bounced back. Uh, we can't sanction 80% of the banks. Vladimir Putin controls 100% of the Russian banks. We have to sanction 100% of the banks. We can't sanction half of their economy when 50% of their GDP, which is oil uh, and, and energy, is being accepted and carved out from the sanctions package. And moreover, something not many people are talking about, Russia has had $650 billion in gold reserves as a way to ride out sanctions and stabilize our currency uh, in anticipation for the sanctions that were going to be thrown their way. We have not yet touched that. There's a lot more we can be doing. um, And the fear that's being put forth is economic backlash from these sanctions. That is no time to worry about this when you have civilians being beheaded, being raped, being tortured and being murdered. Um, human life is much more important than economics at this point. You're a former uh, FBI agent. What can you tell us about what you think or what you've been briefed on Vladimir Putin's state of mind? I mean, 
how far is he willing to go here? Well, I'll leave it to the administration to declassify what they want. Uh, I'll give credit to the administration for declassifying a lot of the intelligence that we were getting on the Intelligence Committee um, dating back to September. Uh, it allowed the world to know exactly what Putin's false flags were going to be and his pretexts were going to be so that nobody bought his story. Uh, and the administration deserves uh, credit for that. Um, but there's a lot more we can be doing, um, Jake, and you know, particularly when it comes to the defensive equipment, the MiG-29s, Poland has exportable inventory, TB-2 drones, Turkey has exportable inventory, uh, the S-300 missiles, uh, Bulgaria, Croatia, Romania, and Slovakia have exportable inventory. All of that needs to make its way into the hands of the Ukrainians because that will allow them to both create and enforce their own no-fly zone. They're not asking for U.S. technology. They're not asking for U.S. boots. So we ought to be at least giving them that which they're asking for. Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick, Republican from the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Coming up, our visit to a cemetery here in Lviv, a cemetery tragically filling up with Ukraine's fallen troops. The death toll now to the point where this graveyard is looking for new land into which they need to expand. That's next. We continue now. We are live from Ukraine. Thousands of Ukrainians joined the military and went to the front lines after Russia invaded this country in February. And since then, thousands have returned home in body bags. Here in Lviv, it has gotten so bad that one local cemetery was forced to dig into new ground to accommodate the dead. I attended one of the Ukrainian military funerals here in Lviv earlier today, and I witnessed the pain of these people as they said goodbye to their loved ones, many of whom just enlisted in the military a few weeks ago. Grave diggers at Lykachiv Cemetery in Lviv, western Ukraine, today had to break ground in a fresh field to make room for the new war dead, repurposing the cemetery's adjacent World War II memorial to find space for the influx. Today, it's Ukrainian Army Sergeant Ulbivok Yacheslav, 43, killed March 28th, and Private Hudzilak Lubomir, 33, killed on April 1st, both killed in Lohansk in the Donbass region. Both men called to service after the Russians invaded. The soldiers' families started this grim day at the Saints Peter and Paul Garrison Church in Lviv. As their caskets passed the crowds on the way into the church, their loved ones wept for those whom they lost to Putin's invading army. The sounds of grief combined with that of prayer. Inside the formerly Jesuit church built in the 1600s, locals have wrapped historic statues to protect them from debris in case of expected Russian shelling. After the service, a military tribute as mourners paid respects and gave flowers to the families, flowers always in even numbers. 
Ruslan Stefanchuk, the presiding officer of the Ukrainian parliament, basically the speaker of the house, stopped by to honor the fallen. I come here and uh, all my honor and all my heart I, I put there. The Russia is guilty for everything, crimes, for everything, uh, genocide, which they do in my land. I want the whole world knows that uh, uh, we never forget for nobody. The church is right next to this monument to famous and beloved Ukrainian poet Taras Shevchenko, who was exiled by Russia's czar in the 1800s for advocating for Ukrainian independence from Russia and for human rights. One of Shevchenko's most famous poems, Zepovit or Testament, reads, When I am dead, bury me in my beloved Ukraine, my tomb upon a grave mound high amid the spreading plain. Cars, vans, and buses full of mourners traveled the short distance to the cemetery. Caskets were unloaded, prayers offered. The ceremony of a burial has been simplified and made shorter in order not to decrease the morale and the spirit of our other military. Every day we have two, three uh, burials here in Lviv. That is the price for our victory. And the military paid tribute with instruments of both art and instruments of war. We say heroes never die. We bury the body, but the glory of these people will live forever in our hearts and in our history. A spokesman for the city would only say dozens when asked how many locals have been killed fighting to defend their homeland from the latest Russian threat. The spreading plain here, next to Lykachiv Cemetery, spreading now in order to make room for the dead. Coming up, how Ukrainians who are escaping the war are not escaping Vladimir Putin's attempts to weaponize them. Kyung La is in Poland and talks to retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel and Ukrainian native Alexander Vindman. That's next. And we're back live from the city of Lviv, located less than 50 miles from the Polish border. Roughly two and a half million Ukrainians have escaped into Poland since this war began. And while they have found refuge there, Poland's president tells CNN's Dana Bash, they're under no illusion that Putin's aggression ends with Ukraine. I think that under these circumstances, nobody has any doubt that Poland is potentially threatened by a Russian aggression in the future. Already, Poland says that it is in the midst of its own battle with Russia as it seeks, Russia seeks to weaponize refugees. Let's bring in CNN's Kyung La. Kyung, what can you tell us about how this migration crisis is actually part of Putin's long strategy to destabilize the West? Well, if you think about it as a numbers game using human beings, that's the way it's being described to me. More than four million refugees have fled Ukraine. A good portion of them have ended up here in Poland. They are pushing people out of Ukraine with the very goal of trying to destabilize NATO. Poland is already waging a war with Russia. It's just not the kind you imagine. Nearly two and a half million Ukrainian refugees have crossed into the safety of Poland as war ravages their country. 
packing Poland's arenas, lining up for government benefits, and sending their children to public schools. These innocent faces are part of Vladimir Putin's war of mass migration. It's a kind of a callousness that we just don't understand here. Retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman is known as a crucial witness in former President Trump's first impeachment proceedings. But he was also a child refugee from Ukraine, whose family moved to the U.S. in 1979. Refugees have been a weapon for a long time. Russia has used refugees as a weapon for years. How do you deploy refugees as weapons? Well, you bomb cities, and those cities result in civilian populations, uh, women and children in particular. What is the theory behind that? Well, they're weaponized just by the mere fact that these are large numbers of people flowing into a country that is not prepared to handle refugee camps that has to you know, now uh, spend funds on, on those refugees. The alleged goal destabilized Poland, a NATO country, from within. But that hasn't happened. Yet. Poland, which was having a mixed record with regards to you know, democratic uh, activities and democratic backsliding, has actually uh, you know, kind of gone back to its roots. It has been extremely welcoming to the Ukrainian population, welcoming Ukrainians into their homes as members of the family. That's to Putin probably unexpected. But Warsaw's mayor says the pressure on his country grows by the day. Putin wants to destabilize Europe and the whole Western world. I mean, he miscalculated because he thought that he's going to divide the Ukrainian society. He lost. He wanted to divide us in the West. He lost. We are also waging a war against his effort to destabilize us. And we have to prove to him that we stand united, that we share the burden. We're just so thankful to Poland, says Marina Lesik, something we hear again and again from Ukrainians. Nearly six weeks into this war, they hope that goodwill lasts. Now, there is no outward sign, at least here in Poland, of any break in that stability. But, Jake, we are just six weeks into this war, and the strain on countries like Poland grows every week. Jake? Kyung, in your conversations with Ukrainian refugees in Poland, what are their expectations for the future? Do they expect to stay in Poland, at least in the short term, if not the long term? Uh, Well, without exception, every single refugee we've talked to, we've spent every single day here talking to people in Warsaw, uh, you know, a number of refugees. Not a single one has said that they plan in the long term to make any place home but Ukraine. The goal is they're going to tread water. They're going to do what they can. They're going to wait and then they want to go back home. Jake. All right. Thank you so much. Kyung La in Warsaw, Poland for us. We'll be right back. Thanks for watching CNN tonight. I will be back again tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern, live from Ukraine. And I will see you before then tomorrow afternoon on The Lead, which begins at 4 p.m. Eastern. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season... 
we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.